Welcome to Cybercast, decoding today's cyber issues. I'm your host, Kate Mackery. Joining me today is Dave Cantrell, Chief Information Security Officer for the Bespin Software Factory, which serves the United States Air Force. Bespin is one of the newer Air Force software factories. Established in 2019, it focuses on delivering mobile software solutions to airmen in theater via what Cantrell calls mission delivery as a service. In this interview, Cantrell is going to discuss how Bespin is focused on increasing automation to improve risk analysis and a DevSecOps approach to secure mobile applications for the Air Force. He's also going to explain why he has a love-hate relationship with Software Bills of Materials, or SBOMs, and how he thinks they may, or may not, improve the Defense Department's software supply chain security. So to start off the conversation today, Dave, can you describe the Bespin Software Factory and its mission, and what it does, how it works, and how it supports the United States Air Force? Sure. So uh, Bespin is a software factory in the Air Force. We were established in 2019 as part of a collaboration between uh, Dr. Will Roper, who was the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force at that time, and Mr. Rich Aldridge, uh, who is the Program Executive Officer over uh, the Business and Enterprise Systems Directory uh, in, in Montgomery. And Dr. Roper had a mandate to stand up uh, the Mobile Center of Excellence and lead mobile adoption across the Air Force. And he also wanted to take the learning and success of Kessel Run and try to spread that out to other missions. And Mr. Aldridge's uh, requirement was to foster innovation in the business and enterprise systems that he is responsible for, and also to try to improve airman time Airman time is a concept that basically identifies that airmen spend a lot of time in their daily mission on non-value-added tasks. For example, writing things on paper and then carrying them back to a computer to type them in, right? And those tasks take away from the mission being completed, but they also take away from the airmen in their personal and family time as well. So we also have a mandate to try to improve that. So... To, to try to achieve those objectives, Bestman, we stood up the software factory and uh, the secure development and delivery infrastructure that we provide and uh, the agile ecosystem that we have available. We also achieved a continuous ATO so that the members of this agile ecosystem can deliver applications very, very quickly to we also built uh, user-centered apps that meet airmen where they're at, and we continue to build those. Uh, so we're putting the apps in their hands at their point of mission execution. We also work to take care of those airmen through our applications so that they can take care of their mission. Um, and so far, what we've accomplished is we've delivered approximately two dozen mobile and web applications to reduce the burden on airmen's time and to implement specific missions within a variety of mission areas for multiple DoD customers. And we're continuing to scale up from there. What are your top cyber priorities for 2022? And how does your work in cyber at Bespin impact cyber at the Air Force? So 
Uh, we, we've got multiple priorities for 2022, uh, one of which, as always, we're going to be working to improve the security capabilities of our MDAS delivery system and our other infrastructure pieces. So MDAS stands for Mission Delivery as a Service, and that is our integrated tool chain that enables teams to perform CICD or, or continuous integration, continuous delivery for applications to production at speed. So in this quarter, we're planning to have multiple improvements by increasing the uh, power of our static and dynamic scanners. We're gonna be uh, improving our, and providing deeper full stack visibility into every application that goes through our pipeline. And we're also working on some supply chain analysis tools. We're also working to continue increasing automation uh, to reduce manual efforts on the product teams and also on our team for risk analysis, which can include pen test automation as one example. Uh, we're, we're also finding that a lot of mission, uh, mission owners are blocked in understanding how to deliver applications to production. So we're working on uh, disentangling some of those convoluted processes, uh, many of which are cyber-specific processes. So we're working on mapping out and reducing the friction in those processes for those uh, innovation teams. And we're also focusing on helping Bespin build out and deliver new capabilities, uh, including uh, its own infrastructure and enterprise level capabilities to better support these teams going forward. Uh, as far as the Air Force impact, uh, we continue to remain engaged at strategic levels in the Air Force and DOD. Uh, for example, we communicate with uh, the Air Force CIO's office, the DOD CIO office, the Chief Software Officer of the Air Force, and we provide our learning from on the ground here at Bespin on a day-to-day -day basis. And we feed that back to them and provide inputs to help shape their emerging guidance. For example, uh, the emerging guidance on continuous ATOs that came out recently from the DOD CIO's office and the follow-on guidance is coming from the Chief Software Office. We help uh, provide inputs and shape those as well. So DOD is pushing for more innovation, particularly in mobile and calls for faster delivery of mission capabilities. What are some of the problems and hurdles facing mobile innovators in the current Air Force, like Bespin and DOD environment as they're trying to achieve these goals? And how are you guys helping innovators who encounter these types of hurdles? Yeah. so. There's, there's three major problems or questions that we uh, find these innovation teams run into pretty much every time. Uh, so these innovation teams, they are trying to build out innovative capabilities. The DOD is establishing these uh, strategic initiatives and efforts to innovate. And these innovation teams from the, the lower levels are seeking to build these capabilities to meet the DOD strategic initiatives, but they keep encountering these three problems over and over and over. We see it repeatedly with these teams. And it really comes down to three questions that they sometimes don't even know they need to ask and answer. Um, and so the, the questions really come down to, um, how do I build the app and secure it to some acceptable standard? And then how do I get my application approved for use once it's built and secured? And then once it's approved, how do I actually deliver my application out to the users? 
So to, to dive into those a bit, the build and secure problem, what we find is the small innovation teams, uh, the developers very often are focused on building their app as they should be. So they, they build out the minimal development infrastructure that they need to, to build the application and get it working on their local machines and their local devices. Uh, but they often have no idea what security requirements they need to build into the app. Um, and what they need to do to get through the risk acceptance processes. So even when they ask the question, okay, how do I uh, build it to an acceptable standard? That implies that they know what that acceptable standard is and they typically don't. Um, when, if they don't know that standard, then they can't really select the security tools that they would use to automate away some of their security pain. And then even if they can select those tools, they're typically not qualified to configure them and perform risk assessments using them because, again, they're focused on building the application, not, they, they typically don't have a strong cybersecurity uh, presence or, or awareness or understanding within the team. And again, that's not the dev team's fault. They're trying to build a capability and bring it, in a sense, bring it to market within the Air Force and DOD. So, when, so, so that's the first problem is, is how do they build it and secure it, right? And, and then the second problem they run into is, okay, now how do they get it approved? Okay, so they, they built it, they've secured it, how do they get it approved? And what they then run into is there, there's a pretty wide variety of cyber approval routes that they can go through, and, and each one of them has their own hurdles, right? So they have the ATO route, which, which most people have heard of, most dev teams know about it, and they fixate on that term. And because from their perspective, it's what they need to do to get the prod. They don't know anything else, but they know that they have to get an ATO to get the prod. And the reality is not all applications require that, right? So there's other routes that are available. There's uh, the DOD has endorsed a uh, NIAP process from the NSA for uh, some mobile applications. There's the continuous ATO process for certain capabilities. The Air Force has a process for certifying applications to go onto what's called a, an EPL, an enterprise product list, which can make it easier for a, a government device owners and uh, system owners to incorporate these pieces of software into their systems. But the dev teams don't know that these other routes exist, nor do they know the hurdles that they could face along any of those, and they don't really know which route to choose. So what you were just talking about leads into my next question, which is how does your security team support mobile app delivery? You talked a little bit about continuous ATO and securing a development environment uh, within the cloud. Can you talk a little bit more about that and kind of what the the day-to-day -day looks like when you are securing a mobile application that is ready for delivery? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so the, the first thing to understand is we, we don't wait until it is ready for delivery. We, we actually shift uh, our security processes leftward. So there's a concept in uh, DevOps and DevSecOps called shift left. When you look at a delivery process and the uh, software development lifecycle visually going from left to right, typically security is at the end. And that's the way it traditionally is in legacy systems. So under legacy models, the uh, traditional RMF legacy process can take six to 18 months of security hardening work after the system is built. And the system build can take several years. 
that's under the traditional federal DOD process. But with our process, by leveraging automation, uh, we're able to shift a lot of that security work much earlier, even into very early in the design phase. And we work in partnership with our uh, product teams. So to understand how that works, it helps to understand uh, within Bespin, uh, the way Bespin is organized is we have a product-centric viewpoint, right, for our organizational structure and our development processes. So in a traditional organization, the organization is broken down into divisions and offices along functional lines. And, and sure, we have a little bit of that, but the majority of our mission capabilities, we organize product teams around those services and uh, products and capabilities. Instead of trying to bring a product and spread it across multiple departments or divisions, we actually form cross-functional product teams who are dedicated and own the entire life cycle of that product. And when they complete their security engineer requirements, we review them uh, shortly after they complete them. We don't wait until the end. So as they're completing their security tasks, we're actually evaluating and assessing along the way. And then when they reach the point for, uh, they're ready for delivery of their uh, MVP, then we actually put them through a structured assessment process where we uh, validate their uh, pipeline uh, threshold setup and their configurations. We, we verify that they're you know, passing all of their pipeline scans, everything is configured correctly. We verify that their security engineering requirements are all satisfied. We coordinate and perform pen testing of their application and review findings from that with the team. And we establish you know, mitigation timeframes and targets. And we identify the risk that the application would pose. And then from there, we make a risk decision on uh, go, no go for that application. And uh, that risk decision is made jointly actually uh, by myself. And we have an external risk advisor who, who acts almost as a, uh, a cyber advisory board. Uh, I set that up specifically within our continuous ATO so that we both work together to sign off and, and when we do the risk reviews for these applications. Gotcha, yeah. So as your security team is securing these mobile applications, what are some of the unique security concerns associated with these mobile solutions and mobile environments? And how do you address them? Sure, so um, there's mobile, mobile applications as people conceive of them typically have three components, right? There's what people think of as the app is the mobile binary. It's deployed onto the physical device. So the application you get on your phone or tablet is the, the binary package that's deployed onto it. For a lot of those applications, and the vast majority of them, much of the heavy lift processing that happens in the application does not happen very much on the mobile device itself but actually happens uh, in the cloud. So there's a tremendous amount of network traffic that flows to and from these devices as they're making API calls out to cloud environments. Uh, and then there's the device itself, which has its own uh, threat landscape, right? We at Bespin, we don't manage the devices ourselves. What we do is we build and harden and deliver the apps to the customers 
so that they can then deploy those apps onto their devices. So we focus on the uh, the mobile binary and uh, the cloud backend. If we build a cloud backend or API tier for these applications, which we do in some cases, uh, and what we find is the the security concerns for the mobile binaries are, are in some ways similar to the security concerns you would have for your IoT software, right? Your your Internet of Things software, so your routers, smart TVs, those types of devices, where uh, the, the the binary is deployed onto a device and, and works very closely with the physical device. Uh, the difference with mobile devices like phones and tablets is that they're optimized specifically to easily add and remove many, many different applications, whereas your router is not. So the challenges that we see revolve around trustworthiness, right? So setting aside the, the physical device, um, the challenges for the applications themselves revolve around uh, how, how do I, as the user, if I'm installing an app, how do I know that it, it's a trustworthy app, right? Um, did I download the right application? Uh, and, and if they're going through the DoD uh, MDM pathway, that's pretty easy because the only way into an MDM app store is to be pre-approved by the DoD to go into that uh, private app store, right? But if it's the commercial app store pathway, well, how do we know that an adversary hasn't created a fake version of the app with a slightly different name, right? And then once you once you overcome that hurdle and you can establish trustworthiness of the application itself, then the question is, how do you trust the data that you're processing, right? How, how do I know that the data I'm getting is the correct data from the correct source? And then when the data is being pushed back to the cloud, uh, for persistence, how does the cloud API side know and trust that the data it's getting is uh, correct, hasn't been tampered with, is from a legitimate application? So from, from our standpoint, we focus on uh, solutions like uh, we, we boost the code level security. So by integrating closely with the product teams, the dev teams, when they're building these applications, uh, we identify those security engineering requirements that help bake in uh, the confidentiality and integrity and authenticity type guarantees in the uh, application that they're building as they're building it. So we provide those tasks to them and we provide tasks to them that are written in their language so that, that they can understand them. And we also provide uh, a lot of overlapping security scans, both static and dynamic security scans. And they provide security scores and we have thresholds for delivery. So if you exceed a certain risk score, you cannot go to production, for example. So open source code is the foundation for many mobile solutions, but it's also a significant source of cybersecurity risk. I'm curious about whether Bespin uses open source code for some of its applications, and if so, how do you handle those security risks, especially with uh, high-profile software vulnerability issues and breaches like you know Log4j, SolarWinds, et cetera? Right. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely a hot topic, and it's always a security concern when you're introducing third-party software capabilities into a system. So uh, again, we, like most DoD systems, right, we, we do use 
a fair bit of often open source software. And we, we try to leverage it whenever we can because there's there can be some significant cost reductions. And we also can uh, often find that the, the talent that we require to operate the capability uh, may be much more widely available uh, when we're using open source capabilities that many, many, many developers are used to working with. So it actually broadens the talent pool that we could draw from to build out these capabilities. Uh, there are security risks with it, but there's security risks with commercial software as well, right? Uh, what we find with open source is uh, we do have more visibility into the risks. With a commercial company, they have an incentive to not disclose vulnerabilities and risks. Obviously, they do disclose them when, when they're publicly announced. Often those are, however, found by security researchers who become frustrated with the slow pace of patching and disclosure from the company. So then they will release public information about it, which then causes the company to scramble and try to patch. Whereas with open source software, uh, if a vulnerability is discovered, uh, there's typically a lot of people watching it. And uh, generally, once the vulnerability is identified, uh, it, it can be patched pretty quickly. Uh, it's not a perfect solution. Um, we had situations on the log for jails one. Uh, there was a hard bleed almost 10 years ago. It was a, a huge problem. But once the, the issue there is once the issue is actually known, then it is very quickly patched on the open source side. So what we find with open source uh, when we implement it is it really requires very knowledgeable technical experts and domain experts who, who can understand those tools and integrate them in to build out a system or capability. A lot of times people think, okay, I'll just throw, throw this particular tool at a problem. And you can't really do that. You need to have a, a lot of deep expertise to do it. And that goes back to uh, the talent pool point that by using open source, we can actually broaden the talent pool. So it, it's, it can be easier to acquire talent to build out those capabilities. Yeah. Do SBOMs play a role in this at all? Uh, they do. So uh, SBOMs are really interesting because I, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with the idea. Um, and, and the reason I say that is they're, they're, it's a great idea and it, it's great for gaining transparency into a particular stack, a particular project, right? Uh, because uh, ostensibly the SBOM is uh, here's just, just like a, a physical supply chain bill of materials. Here's everything in the box, right? The, the problem though is how is that list actually generated? And ultimately it's going to come down to automated tools doing the scanning and analysis to build that list of dependencies. Well, there's already an entire class of tools that provide that. Uh, there's software composition analysis tools, and they're used for a lot of these dependency analysis uh, and vulnerability analysis checks that we were talking about in our pipeline. And what you find is that in order to, in order to build these lists, they have to use certain search strings and search criteria and different tools may use slightly different strings and slightly different queries. So you can actually end up with two or three different tools 
analyzing the same software project, and each is producing an authoritative list that is slightly different, right? Um, you, you may miss some dependencies or have, uh, uh, you know, dependencies listed that aren't actually in there. And it, it creates an interesting situation where uh, you, you can have tools that don't integrate well together, right? Because how trustworthy is the data that you're getting out of that SBOM, right? And then you've got tools that, that they'll claim to support a standard. So there's like the Cyclone DX standard for SBOMs, uh, but they may not fully support it, right? They support it, but then when you actually dig into it, it turns out you were making assumptions and you were allowed to make assumptions so the sale could be made. And now the time comes for you to actually do the integration and you have problems, right? So the devil's really in the details on the SBOMs. And what I find is we, and I, 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 we, I mean everybody, right? And the, the, the DOD, uh, it's not unique to, to me or to us by any stretch, but we deal with so much complexity on a regular basis that it, it becomes very tempting to kind of grasp around for seemingly simple solutions, right? The SBOMs are just a list. It's what you do with them that really matters, right? So whether or not a product produces an SBOM, okay, that's great. But, but you have an SBOM or you have a collection of SBOMs, you, you really have to put thought into what are you actually doing to analyze what's inside that SBOM? Like number one, how do you know that the, the contents of that SBOM are accurate? How much can you trust the contents of it? And then assuming you can trust the contents of it, what are you doing to actually analyze the components within it? And then, okay, you've analyzed the components within it and you have a bunch of different vulnerabilities, but they're using different scoring mechanisms. How do you make sense of it, right? So there's just a lot of complexity in that space that um, it, it's gonna take people a lot of time to really kind of chew through that. Gotcha. So I'd love to get your take on the federal cyber trend and also mandate around zero trust and how zero trust initiatives at DOD and the White House impact your security vision at Bespin. Yeah, um, so, so, so the zero trust initiatives, it's a great initiative. Uh, we love it. We actually have focused on putting a lot of that into our designs and capabilities from the start. Uh, what we found is uh, zero, zero trust has been around for almost a decade. We, we work with a cloud provider, for example, Cloud One. They put a lot of zero trust controls into their uh, architecture by default. So we inherit a lot of that. Um, we implement uh, zero trust both within the cloud uh, and on the device. And we, we really welcome these new initiatives. They don't really impact us in a lot of ways as heavily as, as they might other PMOs. Since, since we do design and architect our capabilities with a lot of that in mind first, whereas other PMOs, especially those with legacy systems that might be 20, 30 years old, they, they don't have that type of architectural viewpoint um, baked in from the beginning. So the biggest impacts that we really see uh, would, would probably be uh, if the DOD mandates a certain enterprise capability that we must work with, then we would find a, you know, need to find a way to integrate with that. 
Um, one example, uh, which we already integrate with, of course, is uh, the cat card systems. Um, the the DISA GCDS uh, provides the you know, kind of authoritative identity for the DOD. And so we use that as a, a, a fundamental principle of zero trust is that your, your identity is your boundary, right? So we're validating uh, our API calls uh, all based on uh, identity verification checks on every every call. Uh, we're not storing you know session state on the server side in the cloud because that's kind of against the cloud uh, you know, hyperscaling horizontal scaling principles anyway. So by building cloud first, we're kind of forcing ourselves to adopt some of the zero trust principles. Sure. So. Changing gears a little bit, how does Bespin's digital university help train the next generation of cyber warriors for the Air Force? And how does this address the talent problem that you were talking about earlier and the general cyber workforce shortage? Yeah, so DU is a really interesting, very interesting application. Um, it was kind of ideated by uh, Bespin and the Air Force uh, CIO as a, a capability to try to transform technical uh, skill development and implementation across the Air Force. And so the, they provide three main functions. Uh, they provide training, right? So they, you can log into Digital University and enroll in a career development path for a particular technical skill set. And behind the scenes, what happens is you're given, a, you're given a list of courses, and behind the scenes, those courses point to different providers. So you could go out and get a subscription to something like Pluralsight or Udemy or one of those providers and only see their content. But Digital University actually partners with multiple providers like that. And so they assemble courses across different providers into a coherent career path. So right now they have, I think, something like 7,000 or so uh, digital courses available across multiple providers. And uh, they also have a opportunity capability where they're building out partnerships with other software factories and industry partners and even universities. Uh, there's a partnership um, they've been working with uh, MIT. It's, it's more than just training. They're, they're focusing on uh, trying to operationalize talent across the Air Force and, and be able to actually draw on a lot of unexpected talent pools. A lot of these airmen are participating in these types of training and events on their own spare time, uh, nights and weekends anyway. And what Digital University does is it provides a platform and capability to try to bring them together and factor them into where they're actually uh, needed and can be best used. So I'm running up on time here, and I have one more question for you to kind of round out the discussion today. What would you say are some of the top cyber challenges facing the DOD enterprise? And in your opinion, what are some good first steps for addressing them, especially from Bespin's standpoint? Yeah, so the, the obvious quick answer is, oh, um, you know, near-peer adversaries, 
with cyber threats and uh, you know lower level adversaries that are trying to get an asymmetric advantage. Um, and there's a lot of smart people working on those. So what I see from my point of view is, as someone who's trying to navigate uh, some of these bureaucracies and, and is trying to help shift some of the cyber policies to speed up delivery, what I see is the DoD has a pretty significant lack of software knowledge and software engineering expertise uh, within the cyber workforce. And that's largely an outgrowth of the DoD system-centric viewpoint, right? The PMO-centric, system-centric viewpoint for capability delivery. The DoD really needs to work on improving the software engineering and software development skill set and knowledge among the cyber workforce, uh, as well as continue evolving the cyber processes to take into account some of the unique, uh, again, unique problems and unique opportunities that software brings to the table. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like shifting to an agile approach to cybersecurity is something that's going to be really key for everyone going forward, regardless of what other types of cyber strategies and protocols they have in place. Yes, absolutely. And we see it in our team as well, because we found significant value in adopting agile methods as a security team, not as a programming team, but as a security team, we have found significant value in adopting the Agile mindset and Agile methods uh, because it allows us to pivot very quickly. Even in, in the course of uh, you know, a week or two, we can pivot what we're working on and uh, we, we don't make fixed plans more than you know, three weeks out at best. Uh, we, we, we focus on overall targets, but we don't, really define our plans until they're pretty near term and uh, we know exactly specifically what we need to do because uh, in our environment where we have to deal with so many different uh, product teams, uh, so many different infrastructure capabilities and uh, multiple strategies, not only with investment, but with external stakeholders uh, imposing a lot of different requirements and needs on investment, we have to be able to respond very quickly and my hat's off to my team because they've adapted to this. It is not easy. Uh, Agile is a method for dealing with complexity, and they they have adapted to it and embraced it. And it's it's really amazing to to see them work uh, and focus on delivering value instead of just trying to check boxes without asking questions. They're they're very very committed to that, and they're very good at it. Well, I'm all out of time today, Dave, and I'm all out of questions at this point, but I really appreciate you taking the time to go into so much detail about security at Best Bend and mobile security and how it's impacting the Air Force. Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. DOD recently called for the entire department, including all military service branches, to move towards continuous ATO a hallmark of Bespin security practices. Software factories like Bespin are on the cutting edge of DOD cybersecurity and are paving the way toward a more secure future for DOD. 
To get deep analysis and insider perspectives on what's trending in federal cybersecurity, subscribe to and follow CyberCast and visit our website at governmentciomedia.com. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. CyberCast, along with GovCast and HealthCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com.